Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Mark Byington, the editor of the publication series Early Korea. We talked specifically about the most recent publication in this series, Early Korea 3, The Rediscovery of Kaya in History and Archaeology. And this was published... Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Mark Byington, the editor of the publication series Early Korea. We talked specifically about the most recent publication in this series, Early Korea 3, The Rediscovery of Kaya in History and Archaeology, and this was published with the Korea Institute of Harvard University in 2012. This is an amazing volume and a really amazing project um, and kind of work that this Korea Institute and the Early Korea Project more specifically are doing at Harvard University. And it's a service that it's providing not just to the specific field of early Korea studies or Korea studies more broadly, but also to East Asian studies uh, more broadly writ. Now, over the course of our conversation, we both talked uh, very specifically about the thematic focus of this issue, Kaya. What is Kaya? When was Kaya? Why is this so important for early Korean history? And what can we learn from this as readers of or scholars of or enthusiasts of histories beyond that of early Korea? We also talked more broadly about the context within which this particular volume is situated, and that is um, both uh, the early Korea publication series, but also the Korea Institute and the kind of work that it's doing, the kind of workshops they're putting out, and the kinds of resources that exist um, and that are hopefully going to continue to come out of this institute that are, I want to argue, and and I really uh, deeply feel this, of use not just to specialists, but also to all of us who are reading, thinking about writing or teaching anything having to do with East Asian history. One of the things that's so fascinating about the particular thematic focus that we talked about for the last part of this interview, Kaya, is that it raises really interesting conceptual and craft issues that I think a lot of us um, are working with or are interested in regardless of the kind of topic that we work on. This includes the nature of evidence on which to base an argument. So how to reconcile material evidence, written evidence, evidence coming from different languages, written in different texts that are in different periods and coming from different historiographical traditions, how to, as a scholar, translate among those different kinds of sources, both um, early sources but also contemporary historiographies and local historiographies that emerge at different institutions in different national contexts and in different times and places. There's also a really fascinating dimension of the story that you'll hear about over the course of the interview Uh, that has to do with the politicization of history. So one of the things that makes Kaya, this very, very early um, period of Korean history, so trenchant and so relevant for uh, politics right now is it becomes, um, at some point in the history of history-making, a touchstone for Japanese colonial interests in Korea. And so there's a really interesting dimension of the politicization of early history that I think speaks across fields um, and across disciplines. Mark also talks um, a little bit at the end, and, and I recommend um, you know getting to the end of the interview for this, 
about uh, issues of how to access and the problems of accessing North Korean data, um, really interesting projects that are emerging on iron and bronze metallurgy and, and the possible future directions of that. So I hope you enjoy. I certainly did, and uh, happy listening. We're here today to talk with Mark Byington about a series of books that he's edited called Early Korea, the third volume of which was recently published in, right in 2012. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Mark, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about the volume itself and also about the larger project that it's part of. Yes, thank you, Carla. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So, Mark, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background? How did you become involved in the field of Early Korean Studies? Uh, it was a fairly uh, circuitous route. It began uh, back in the early 1980s when I was sent to uh, South Korea with the uh, U.S. Air Force, and I was stationed there for a year, and during that time became very interested in the place I was living, uh, made an attempt to learn the language, and was uh, very interested in the, the history of Korea, and I bought a uh, book, a very simple uh, history text in English, of course, and uh, began to read about Korean history. And for some reason, I don't uh, particularly know why, uh, I was very interested in the earliest periods, uh, maybe because there wasn't uh, a lot known about it, even at that time. Uh, but I was quite interested in that. And uh, after my uh, uh, term in the Air Force, I went to college and was a computer science uh, major, but I minored in Asian studies. So th this interest stayed with me for a number of years. And after I graduated from college, or I should say first that I spent uh, many of my summers in college going to Korea and more or less traveling from uh, traveling freely from one historical site to the next. So I had really uh, developed a very strong interest by college in early Korean history. Uh, after I graduated, I worked as an engineer. I was Again, I was a computer science major, and so I worked in a job that uh, allowed me to travel in East Asia. My job basically was getting laser printers to print in East Asian languages, and uh, during that time, I managed to pick up some Korean. Uh, uh, my Korean was entirely self-taught, uh, uh, which has advantages and disadvantages. Um, and I was also able to learn to read classical Chinese almost on my own. I, I had very few notes to work with, and so I had started to train myself uh, during this time. And while I was traveling in East Asia with, uh, um, uh, as an engineer, I uh, just became more familiar with uh, uh, traveling in different parts of East Asia. I was in uh, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, of course, Japan. I did not travel to mainland China until uh, the early 90s when I, I actually went there on my own to follow up on a, um, a uh, uh, re, uh, some, uh, excuse me, some uh, translation work I was doing. There is a uh, the earliest extant work of history in Korea is a work called the Samguk Sagi, which translates as Histories of the Three Kingdoms. Uh, the book itself dates to the 12th century, but it describes Korean history in the earlier period, which is what I was interested in. And uh, I wanted so badly to know what this book said. There were no English translations. And I wanted so badly to know what it said that I just started translating parts of it. And over the years in college, this became a more serious effort. And I found that by the time I was working as an engineer, I was spending my evenings translating this book. I had no social life at all. 
and I, which is really sad, but uh, in the end, I wound up translating the, this entire book into English. And uh, to date, and this was this was many years ago, more than twenty years ago, and to date, only one chapter has ever appeared in publication. Uh, the rest of it is sitting um, above my head in my office as we speak. But uh, but it really uh, steered me towards a, a deep deeper study of early Korean history, and I was interested in one of the three kingdoms, Kogoryo, which was uh, located uh, in, in a territory that straddled what is today North Korea and uh, northeastern China. And at that time in South Korea, there were so few publications, uh, so, so few academic articles on Kogoryo that it really didn't help me much when I was trying to translate uh, the annals of the Kogoryo kingdom. And so I went to China to visit the archaeological sites. And uh, this gave me a uh, sort of the, the three-dimensional experience, which really helps when you're trying to understand ancient history. There's nothing like traveling to the sites themselves to give you that that that, that dimension. And uh, in the meantime, I was teaching myself uh, modern Chinese. I assumed that since I could uh, I could read classical Chinese, I should be able to speak modern Chinese. This is not true. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I learned that the hard way. Um, but when I came back from my visit, I realized that I really need, did need to learn uh, modern Chinese. And uh, again, this began as a self-taught uh, exercise. Uh, I don't recommend this. It's not the best way to do it. But when you don't have resources, I was working again as an engineer um, in Kentucky. Uh, uh, one advantage I had is that I was able to learn uh, modern Japanese for business because uh, a lot of my business took me to Japan. So I was able to speak uh, Japanese at a rudimentary level. It was probably a little bit better than my Korean and Chinese, at least more accurate. But all of this built up. And um, during my years as an engineer, I was you know, spending my quality nighttime translating this, this early Korean history book. Um, I was trying to get parts of it published. And I was maintaining some connections with some of my Asian studies professors from college, and they eventually convinced me that I probably was in the wrong field. I wasn't terribly happy with my uh, my job. I felt that I could be doing other things, more creative work. And they convinced me to uh, apply for uh, uh, graduate study. And, uh, and so I did. Um, I chose Harvard, strangely enough, because I really liked the quality of Harvard's publications. Uh, <laughs> and, and ironic, was, given the, the volume we're talking about, right? It, well, it is. I mean, and, and, and I was already thinking along the lines of publishing my translation of the Samguk Sagi, which, by the way, never happened and probably never will happen. I learned some lessons along the way. But in the meantime, I was introduced to Harvard, and I applied uh, only to Harvard, in fact, and uh, was accepted Um and uh, happily gave up my career as an engineer and transitioned into a graduate student's life um, and never regretted doing it. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people would have had some uh, trepidation at the thought of giving up of what was possibly a stable career as an engineer and going into something that is entirely, uh, um, well, uh, I think the future uh, prospects were tentative at best at that time, but it was what I really wanted to do. And so I never really regretted that. That, in a nutshell, is how I came, uh, sort of a big nutshell, I admit, but it's that's how I came to uh, uh, steer my uh, life into professional early Korean studies. That's so fascinating on a number of levels, and, and we'll talk about this, um, I think, in the course of our conversation, but not only 
um, very early on did translation become really a, a key part of what brought you to the field, it sounds like, and that's very much um, an important part of the kind of work that the volume and all of the volumes actually in this series do. So we'll talk about that. But also the having a background in engineering and getting into um, textual translation and textual history really also, I think, resonates with the, the wonderful interplay between the material and materiality and the textual that also comes out um, in really all of the volumes um, of the early Korea publication. So it's interesting sometimes to see how our biographies um, uh, bring us into, um, interestingly, a, a path that resonates with the content of what we work on. Yes, and strangely enough, having a background as uh, um, a, a computer science major, somebody who writes programs and who must rely on logic, uh, uh, th this helps a lot when you are trying to construct an argument on ancient history or archaeology. So Early Korea is produced by the Early Korea Project at the Korea Institute of Harvard University. So can you talk a little bit as we work our way into the volumes themselves about this project? How was the Early Korea Project established and how did you become involved in it? The Early Korea Project came about um, in a moment of desperation almost. I uh, uh, went through a uh, doctoral program at Harvard and uh, completed my degree in 2003. Uh, even before that time, I was already uh, uh, looking for potential work in that field. And, of course, when you are in a program like this, you, uh, of, of this sort, you probably are thinking of nothing outside of simply securing a, a faculty position, tenure track, and hopefully uh, uh, sliding into a tenured position uh, eventually. Um, it turns out that this was this this was not going to happen at all because uh, in 2003 and even uh, after this time, there, there really was no uh, 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 strong desire. I think uh, in any uh, department that I was aware of to find somebody whose specialty was in early Korea. I, I could argue that uh, somebody who studies Korea is uh, very well positioned to teach East Asia because if you focus on Korea, you have to know China, you have to know Japan. Um, and if you are dealing with uh, pre-modern, especially early Korea, you have to know all of those languages, Japanese, Chinese, uh, modern Korean, and classical Chinese. So somebody who is going to... Uh, uh, put themselves in a position to have to learn all of these things, I think, is probably well positioned to teach uh, East Asia in general. Uh, my own obsession with early Korea, perhaps, uh, may have uh, spoiled me for that sort of uh, more general approach. Um, and in fact, after about four years of finding a steadily diminishing interest in uh, somebody who specialized in early <laughs> Korea, I felt that I'd better start trying to uh, find something that was going to allow me to keep paying my rent. And I actually left the field for a brief time and was working for a bank and a legal department, uh, biding my time in a way. But uh, I was also taking some courses at the Harvard Business School. And um, all of these things came together uh, and gave me the idea. And again, this was sort of a moment of desperation that it might be viable to take a business approach uh, in towards developing a field which really did not have much of a presence uh, in North America and the English language. There was very little available on early Korea. A lot of what you could have found before 2006, which is when the early Korea project was established, uh, not all of it, but most of it, I think, was uh, rather out of date. It was uh, either so technical or uh, sometimes badly translated that it really was, was difficult to access for people who are 
weren't already deeply involved in this study themselves. And by that time, they probably would have been able to read the materials in Korean. So it was a hopeless situation from one point of view. But from another, it really presented an opportunity because uh, after looking at this from a business point of view, it occurred to me that there's no reason you can't develop a program like this, provided that there is a good reason for it, that it is a uh, a program that people would be interested in, uh, not so much for its, you know, the, the, the specific content that you would be dealing with, but as a case study almost for looking at some uh, some issues that are of much broader, more general interest. And I think that early Korea is a very good um, um, uh, a fo- focal point for this sort of approach because, uh, for example, one of the issues I like to talk about is state formation. If you want to see how um, uh, simpler societies uh, uh, develop through time and form states, well, in early Korea, you have uh, a very good testing ground for a number of different cases of this, and each one of them differs from the, the others. Uh, this is one of a great many uh, approaches, academic approaches that uh, for which early Korea provides a very good testing ground. And I think that this is one of the things that uh, convinced me that this was worth doing. So I put together a prospectus, and I believe this was in the earlier part of 2006, and I looked at the problems. Why has this field never uh, uh, developed in the U.S., North America, English-speaking countries? And uh, what is preventing it from developing now, and what would it take to get around all of these these hindrances? And I myself was already convinced that there was an interest in this topic. I knew people who were interested because they told me they were. I sensed that there was a need for this in the field. And so I uh, put together a prospectus that essentially uh, outlined a series of programs that would focus on workshops, lectures, um, that sort of thing that would be focused at a, uh, you know, a central location, but each of these things would be oriented towards ultimately a publication, uh, something that could be broadly disseminated, uh, and this is not something that would be done at random. People who were already active within this field, a very small number of people, in fact, uh, would discuss this. Uh, how do we build a field from almost nothing. And uh, what are the stepping stones that we really want to work with? We have to, uh, we introduce this topic first, and from that we can build to another topic. And we uh, uh, had discussed this early on. I had uh, two other people who were in this field, and we were joined soon by a third. Uh, The four of us held many discussions on this topic. How do we build this field? And how do we do this by way of mostly publications? And Early Korea was one of the things that came out of this. We Early Korea Project uh, was established in uh, November of 2006 on the basis of funding that was um, provided from institutes in Korea. The Korea Foundation and the Academy of Korean Studies gave us our initial uh, startup funding. The Korea Foundation funding continues till today. And uh, soon afterwards, the Northeast Asian History Foundation joined in with a five-year grant, which is supposed to terminate later this um, uh, this year. And with all of these resources pulled together, and this includes personnel as well, people who are interested in this, actively work in this field, uh, along with our colleagues in Korea and elsewhere, we were able to focus on certain issues at a time. And early Korea is the result of one of those uh, pathways that we established. Um, the first volume came out, I believe, in the end of 2008, 
uh, it seems like yesterday to me, but I believe, I'm pretty sure it was 2008. And and it really was the uh, it was the first publication we had, and it really demonstrated very clearly what we were already convinced we could do. But it was something that I, I think uh, was needed in the field, and so we looked at that need. We assessed uh, our resources and decided. Uh, that here's how we can put this together and make it work. And we had a blueprint for additional publications. Um, that probably goes into far more detail than you were, you were asking. No, no, this is great. Yes. So yes. We'll, um, we'll get into detail a little bit more mm-hmm. in a bit about the early career publications and about the, the most recent volume in particular. But before mm-hmm. we move to that, I know um, the early career project at the Korea Institute actually does – and the institute itself, it, early publishing early Korea is only one of the endeavors that it's involved with, right? That's right, yes. So what other kinds of things, especially for listeners who may not um, yet be familiar with the project and the kinds of resources that are available through it, um, what, kind, what other kinds of work um, does the project and the institute uh, do? Well, we have a number of programs that we, uh, uh, we call our, our regular Programs. These are the ones that, that go from uh, throughout the year. We have a lecture series. Uh, this is called Lectures on Early Korea, and this is where we invite uh, people, uh, uh, sometimes from Korea, but sometimes we find people who are based in the U.S., and we ask them to talk about research that they themselves have done. And we try to focus on topics that really have not been presented in English before, yet are uh, expected to be of interest. To Western scholars. And so this is something we initiated early on. Our uh, initial uh, grant from the Academy of Korean Studies was in part used to invite five archaeologists from Korea to give us a, uh, a um, survey, really, you know, based on a number of different themes, major themes in Korean archaeology, and, and to update this field in English. And five of those uh, were, were held um, and well attended by uh, the uh, uh, by people in the uh, Department of Archaeology at Harvard, but also people uh, who are interested in Korea and East Asia. And this, this was a very good way of, of um, giving people who uh, otherwise would probably not have had any real access to Korea a, a good background uh, on uh, the basics of, of, of Korean archaeology. And since that, that time, we've had a number of, of uh, graduate students and faculty who have continued to uh, show an interest in, in um, Korean archaeology, and this is a very good thing. And, and by the way, the numbers of, of students and graduate programs uh, since that time has risen enormously. It's, it's really surprising. Um, I'd like to credit the Early Korea Project with that. I don't know. Uh, I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Um, I like to think we did have something to do with it. That's one of the programs we have. Uh, we also have the workshop program, and the workshop is a program that is, uh, well, there are two kinds. One of them is a more extensive workshop that lasts one year, and it involves several meetings by a core group of of specialists who are getting together to discuss a certain key topic in early Korean history or archaeology. And the purpose of this is to create a volume, uh, a publication. And uh, so it's not simply people getting together and saying, hey, I've worked on this topic, and let me show you what I've, I've got. We we, we already have a, a general outline of what we want to have in a publication, and we find people who could essentially write those chapters, and we, uh, we confer with them uh, on several occasions in order to uh, uh, um, determine who will write 
what chapters, uh, what the specific content would be, uh, how updated can we get the content. Uh, in some case, we, you know, we have to change things as we are, uh, we are um, 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 preparing a publication because of some new discovery. Uh, um, Korean, early Korea is, is a very current event in many ways. Um, that's the one type of workshop, and, and this will, of course, end with a, ideally with a series of chapters for a book, and I'll talk about that process in a moment. The other kind of workshop is what I call a one-shot workshop. It doesn't really require uh, a lot of uh, extensive discussion because it's uh, the nature of the topic we choose, and then we will simply have a workshop, uh, usually at Harvard, uh, and these uh, scholars who are uh, invited will present their work. Um, sometimes they will present it in, in their native language, and we will have it translated into English, interpreted into English real time, so that members of the Harvard community who, who do not access that uh, language will be able to uh, interface with with the um, presenters. And this has uh, worked out very nicely in the past. Um, but all of these workshops are designed ultimately to result in publications. And we've had a number of them to date. We've had, only one of them has has gone to publication, and that is a volume on uh, Schiller Statecraft, which came out in 2009. This is part of the Early Korea Project occasional series. That's the other series we have besides Early Korea. And uh, we have two more uh, that are uh, going to be available very soon. In fact, if they're not out in a couple of months, I'm going to be in big trouble. Um, so we have two more, and we have, I think, four more that are in the pipeline at various levels of preparation. So uh, we are building this foundation that I spoke of earlier, slowly but surely, and this is another one of the uh, the um, programs that we have. I, uh, we do have uh, an outreach program. We have a, a website that uh, provides news on early Korea and uh, some uh, research tools and so forth, and we're working on developing that. Uh, besides that, we also try to get uh, archaeologists who are based in, especially in North America, not exclusively North America, but people who are interested in Korea, we try to get them uh, working uh, uh, in excavation work in Korea. And there have been a, quite a number of people uh um, who fall into this category, and we've been able to f facilitate uh, connections with students in North America and get them working in Korea. Sometimes we even get uh, uh, people who are, are uh, faculty at um, universities who are interested in Korea. We get them connected and have them sent off to Korea so that they can, uh, they, they can uh, do their research there. Um, th that program uh, is, is more of an ad hoc thing. We do that when we can. We've even had a, a small-scale excavation, a joint excavation project um, uh, that is ongoing. Um, I believe it began last year, and uh, it's you know a fairly modest beginning, but I think that it uh, uh, has promise for the future. We would like to see that uh, upscaled a bit in the coming years. Wow. Thank you so much. I mean, it's an amazing range of kinds of resources that the project is offering and producing, and I'm really glad that we have a chance to talk about it today. So, again, thank you, because I'm learning a lot from this process. <laughs> um, so the series that we are here to talk specifically about early Korea, it's intended, at least um, from the perspective of one reader um, who has worked through the volumes, to provide surveys of Korean scholarship um, and sort of translations of Korean language scholarship, but for the most part, but not exclusively, on fundamental issues in the study of early Korean history, 
archaeology, and art history. And far from treating these three fields as separate fields, one of the really wonderful things about all of these volumes, and and certainly the third volume in particular, is the way that it shows the very transdisciplinary and multimedia nature of historical work on this period as it transcends and sort of rises above and merges what we might think of as these three distinct fields. I'm sorry, go on. No, yes, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because that's one of the things that uh, was very evident to me when I started my graduate study. Remember, I began with a very strong interest in history, but I learned very quickly that uh, I would not be able to get very far in early Korean history unless I was able uh, to do archaeology as well. And so I was very fortunate to be in a program that would allow me to uh, do both archaeology, do work in the Department of Archaeology here, but also uh, study history. And so uh, an art history is, is, falls right into that category as well. It's very difficult to do early Korea unless you have a grasp of, of the basics of each of those three disciplines. And, and there's more, but those three really uh, interact and, and should be used uh, together in any research on early Korea. Now, um, the, each volume is intended to provide not an exhaustive picture, but certainly a representative picture of the state of the field around um, the particular issues at hand in Korea today. Um, and there's a very helpful section, and I, I want to um, direct listeners to this in particular. At the back of each volume, that's got full-color images, which is true of all of the images in all of the volumes. They're very, as a footnote, I'll mention they're very beautiful volumes. So as material objects, these are gorgeous, gorgeous publications um, that are just a pleasure to hold in the hand and page through and look at. But there's, um, in, in particular, a helpful section at the back of each of one of the volumes that introduces each of the authors um, uh, that are featured in the work, including um, color pictures of them. And so um, that's very, very helpful. I'm sorry. Uh, Yes, thank you for mentioning that. That is actually uh, something that I had uh, uh, thought of very early on because one of the things uh, that is lacking in existing publications that deal with translations of Korean scholarship into English is you really don't know who who is talking at you, right, Uh, uh, unless you happen to know that field yourself. And one of the things that uh, I felt was very easily accomplished uh, it was uh, providing a simple biography of the people uh, who are are contributing to these volumes and and uh, to the uh, extent of including photos. We we like to have uh, more candid photos. We like smiles. We, uh, in, in Korea, if you see this kind of book in Korea, you're going to see a lot of passport photos and very serious looking uh, <laughs> uh, people who, if you know these people, they never look like that. Uh, people are, you know, engaged in their field. They're happy. They're smiling and they are, they're working. And, and I think that it's important to show them in that context. Uh, archaeologists especially like to show pictures of themselves in the field. And I think that uh, this is a very small thing that we can do that nevertheless less puts a face uh, on the uh, scholarship that the the readers are encountering. Now you've already talked a little bit about um, how the how you compile the authors of the workshop volumes that come out, including the the recent um, occasional series uh, paper on Chilla that just came out. Is that similar? Um, is that a similar process when you're soliciting authors for early Korea volumes, or is it a different process? Now, the process is similar. We have a uh, steering committee of those 
four people, including myself, who uh, I mentioned, who's, who's, who are active in the field, whose research really focuses on early Korea. And we meet, uh, we're supposed to meet quarterly, and in practice we usually do. Um, and when we meet, we spend a lot of time discussing the topic of the next issue of early Korea. And, uh, and these discussions do go on and on because there's a lot to consider in this. And once we lock down to a lock on to a, um, a topic, then we have to figure out, um, okay, so what do we need to cover? And the recent uh, volume on Kaya that came out is a good illustration of that because when we uh, have a topic uh, that is going to be something as narrowly focused as a single polity, we like to look at the history, historical documents. We like to look at the archaeology, and we like to look at the scholarship uh, that has been conducted so far on these, especially uh, uh, scholarship or that is looking at uh, problems in the field. What are the, the issues of, of academic debate? Uh, what do we know? What do we not know? Uh, you know? The question of what we do not know is is the most difficult thing to get scholars to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about what they don't know. Uh, but this this is important because this helps to um, provide context and some um, uh, 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 some uh, way of entering into a field that could look very very complex at first. Um, and so this is what we we uh, we do is we we talk about what we want to cover and then after we have de- determined uh, the topics then we start thinking about who has written well on this topic in Korea or or elsewhere. And then we start uh, uh, contacting those people, and, and uh, usually the those who we contact are very happy to participate. And if they are in Korea, we ask them to write in Korean, if that is their na- native language, uh, because we feel that it's better for them to write a new paper in Korean, but for Western readers. So don't expect that your readers are going to know all of the context that, uh, you know, your Korean colleagues are going to know. Uh, Bear that in mind as you are writing this paper in Korean. And when the paper itself is translated into English, uh, at least in theory, we should have uh, a a paper that's ideally um, intended for Western readers who don't necessarily know all the background of this topic, but, uh, you know, who are nevertheless interested. Uh, There's more to it than that, of course. There's a lot of, of interpretation that goes into the process. It's not just a language thing, but people think in different ways. Scholars in Korea ask different questions, and they have different um, uh, uh, different concepts of of, of key issues uh, as compared to their colleagues in the West. This is a natural thing, and we try to uh, bridge that gap in um, in whatever ways we can. And, and this makes the translation process a very complicated one, in fact. But the uh, way we select the people is, just as I said, we find those people who have worked on this and are well-respected in their fields, uh, often in Korea, but sometimes we, we look at people who've worked outside of Korea um, and uh, even in the West. Mm-hmm. So um, this actually, your mentioning of translation as an issue really beautifully brings us to, I think, one of the other, one of the next questions that I wanted to ask you before we get to Kaya specifically, um, which is what we'll talk about um, next toward the toward the last part of the interview. So right. in the so each one of the three volumes, um, Volume 1, Reconsidering Early Korean History Through Archaeology, Volume 2, The Samhan Period in Korean History, and Volume 3 um, that we're talking about today, The Rediscovery of Kaya 
and history and archaeology. Each one includes a thematic focus section devoted to a particular topic. And again, um, we'll talk about Kaya, which is the focus of this third volume, in a moment. But in addition to that section, there are a number of other sections in each volume. They're not always the same across all volumes, but have included um, pretty consistently studies on Korean, uh, early Korean history and archaeology, studies from the field, and sources and translation, which was one of the sections in the second volume. Now, let's just take a minute to talk a little bit about this issue of translation, because this seems to be really crucial, um, and as you've mentioned, on many levels, to the work being done in these volumes and to the um, utility for many, many kinds of scholars and, and readers, general readers in many, many fields of these volumes to the kind of work that many of us are doing, including and perhaps especially those of us who don't think of ourselves as doing work on early Korea, but for whom um, actually now that you've made the, these studies available to us, it seems like, well, uh, you know, and, and this happens certainly to me, wow, wouldn't you know it, early Korean history is actually relevant to what I'm doing in early modern Chinese history. So um, so translation is really crucial to the, the work that's happening across these volumes, and certainly in volume three. Many of the articles are translated into English from Marian, original Korean essays, um, and I just want to ask you a little bit about that process. I wonder. I understand that you're primarily responsible for a lot of that translation. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yes. I, I wish that were not the case, but uh, I am responsible for uh, a lot of the translation. I mean, I'm not solely responsible. We sure. do have other people who help with this. When uh, I'm able to impose on the uh, uh, goodwill of, of graduate students and others in the field who are a- able to translate these things. I do that, and, um, and and this is a real help for me. But I have to go through every single word of translation myself and make sure that uh, that I agree with what is being you know that this is actually the the meaning because uh, of the original. Because I mean, it, it we're dealing with a a subject that can be very complicated when you are approaching it in, in, in Korean because there's a lot of background, uh, academic background, uh, to a lot of these subjects in Korean. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge for me as well uh, uh, to understand fully where some of the views that we're reading in Korean are coming from. And there are reasons for this. A lot of it, it has to do with uh, the, the historiography of the peninsula in the 20th century. You had a period during which uh, uh, Japan colonized Korea and more or less monopolized the interpretation of the Korean past. And a lot of Korean scholarship after 1945 was all about uh, undoing the harm that was perceived as having been done during that period. And uh, only if you understand that can you really uh, understand properly why uh, studies of Korean history in Korea have taken the trajectory in which they have. So this is one of the, the complexities in translation. And, and then you get to the technical detail of of, um, of uh, how do you translate an academic paper from Korean into English. Um, we have worked with uh, companies that specialize in translation, and uh, sometimes they do a, a pretty good job, a surprisingly good job, uh, uh, considering some of the uh, arcane material that we deal with. Uh, and we also, uh, as I said, we work with graduate students and um, uh, other people in the field as they are willing and able to do this. Uh, a lot of the time it, it falls to me to do these translations. Um, uh, 
I actually enjoy the process of translation. I just don't don't like doing it under fire. I don't know how many people do. Right. Um, yeah, and it's uh, you know if I could do it at leisure, I would be perfectly happy. But it but that's never the case anymore. I usually find myself uh, for weeks on end uh, sweating through a translation word for word to make sure that uh, not only have we reflected the meaning accurately, but also that this is being presented properly in English. Um, and I feel competent in uh, history and archaeology, maybe less so in art history. So we always try to find our colleagues in art history, for example, who can check these translations. Are we using the right words? Are these, you know, are these terms correct? Uh, and the same thing for archaeology and history. So it's not just me, uh, fortunately. Uh, but we also have you know, all of our. Uh, publications are peer-reviewed. We have to send all of these things out to people in the field who are willing to go through them and give their feedback. Um, we like not to have to go back too many times to our original authors because then we have to go through more translation. And uh, uh, so we try to plan ahead to the extent possible. Uh, another thing I should mention is that early Korea is done under uh, a very tight schedule. We usually go from conception to publication within a year, which is uh, wow. Uh, yes, I, 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 I'm still astounded that we're able to do this. Um, well, you know, pressure does a lot for you. You know, it's um, uh, you, 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 you either publish or you lose your funding for next year, and so that's a pretty good incentive. Um, but we have found ways of streamlining this process, and so we have this this. Um, process where we receive uh, materials by a certain deadline, we go through uh, translation, uh, we go through review, we go through uh, revision, and um, and then we go through the professional proof, proofreading. Uh, we, we, do, uh, we go through a professional proofreader twice, and we have people who check our romanization, librarians who have a great deal of experience in this, help us in that. Um, so there are a lot of steps in this, uh, and these are things that our uh, colleagues in Korea, by the way, who publish uh, journals and other books in English, don't do. They don't have the uh, luxury of going through these extra steps, which is uh, one advantage that we do have. Um, that gets into a, a little of the technical aspect of this. I, I don't know if you wanted me to go further into that, or if you wanted to move no, on to a. No, that's great. I mean, I think one of the things that um, that you're mentioning that comes up actually. Uh, evokes a kind of issue that's going to come up when we talk about Kaya specifically as a historiographical um, set of issues, which is the, the challenge of reconciling terminology, um, place names, the names of polities, um, consistency across uh, material in different languages and coming from different historiographical traditions, which is both, it sounds like, part of the work that goes into the production of these volumes, and which is also part of the work that the historian and archaeologist, or that's, that's incumbent upon the historian and archaeologist when doing work on this period in the first place, given the source base that you describe so interestingly um, in the third volume. So, um, so we'll get to that as well in a moment. Okay, so the the volume that just recently came out in 2012, Early Korea 3, as we've mentioned, looks specifically at Kaya. Kaya was an ancient polity centered on a region in the southernmost part of the Korean peninsula. And for most of its existence, as is um, mentioned really nicely in the editorial introduction and also in many of the um, articles in the volume, it took the form of a kind of confederation of statelets until late in its life when it um, emerged as more of a um, – something that more resembled the shape of a state. Am I getting that roughly right? 
Oh, yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay, well, that's only because um, the volume is so clear. Um, and so <laughs> kudos to you that I know it. This is the only thing that, um, that I had ever read about Kaya, so I learned a lot. So this, <laughs> this is actually I'm, – I'm really thrilled that we have a chance to talk a little bit about this because one of the things that's so striking about this um, as a focus, as a topic in early Korean history is that the kinds of historiographical problems that emerge from this particular topic really resonate with the larger field of history work in general. And, and this is beyond early East Asia, beyond East Asia at all. It raises um, really interestingly the kinds of issues that any of us working on any period um, may face at one point or another in the kind of work that we do. So this is what I want to move to um, if, you're, if you're willing to go there with me for the oh, remainder of our conversation. Okay. So um, can you talk a little bit about, especially for readers and listeners who don't yet know anything or know much about Kaya, this period, why has this period traditionally posed such a historiographical problem for the field of Korean studies? Right. Uh, well, there are a number of reasons for this. One is historiographical, and I'll touch on that now because I can uh, dispense with it rather quickly. Uh, it's historiographical because Kaya is the fourth of the three kingdoms. Uh, during, during the three kingdoms period, there was actually uh, a fourth entity called Kaya that was sandwiched between uh, Pekche and Shilla. And Pekche was in the southwestern part of the uh, peninsula, Shilla in the southeastern part, and right between them uh, were the so-called Kaya polities, and they did formed confederations, at least two major confederations through time, uh, centered at two different locations. Uh, and depending on how you define a state, you can say that ultimately that Kaya did form a state, a state-level polity. Uh, people who define state differently could argue against that, but that's really a matter of naming. It was a significant uh, polity or group of polities, a confederation, that uh, was a, a very important and active player in uh, in Northeastern Asia. Uh, it had active exchanges with uh, uh, peoples and polities in the Japanese archipelago and elsewhere in the um, peninsula. And, and this was a very complicated uh, time in history. Uh, but for various reasons, Kaya uh, did not survive long enough to become one of the uh, the three kingdoms, I guess the fourth kingdom, uh, because it was ultimately uh, um, weakened and absorbed into Shilla in the 6th century. And I'm going to try to put this uh, briefly. Um, the other two kingdoms uh, fell in the middle 7th century when one of the kingdoms, Shilla, allied itself with uh, the Tang Empire of China. And together they brought down first first Pekche and then Kobryo, and Shilla managed to take in uh, uh, Pekche territory and a part of Kobryo territory. And from this time, there started to become a uh, comprehensive history of the peninsula. Um, history writing, in other words, looked at all of these uh, polities as more or less uh, different takes on the same um, same thing. Uh, uh, prior to this, they all had their own historical traditions, but when Shilla managed to absorb Pekche and part of Kobryo, uh, there was an effort to create a comprehensive history of the three kingdoms. And this concept of three kingdoms echoed uh, the previous three kingdoms of China, which was thought of as an aberration of history. Three kingdoms should not be. Uh, th th these are three uh, polities that are bound 
unify because the idea is that unity is the norm and this unity is, is an aberration. Uh, so this idea of three kingdoms was utilized by Shilla after the other two fell, or even before the other two fell, is this idea that there was bound to be this single entity in the Korean peninsula. By that time, Kaya had already been absorbed into uh, Shilla, and uh, after um, Shilla fell in the early 10th century, the Koryo kingdom succeeded it, and it more or less continued this territorial uh, range that Shilla had occupied towards the end uh, and expanded on that. And uh, that's when you have this history of the three kingdoms being uh, written in 1145. And this is the, the, the work that became the orthodoxy, even to the present day, this idea that there are three kingdoms in the Korean peninsula. The reason for that is this three kingdoms uh, came out of this, this uh, warfare between Shilla, Pekcha, and Kaya, uh, or excuse me, <laughs> Kogryo. <laughs> And Shilla. Uh, Kaya was not a factor in there because it had long since ceased to exist as an independent polity uh, by the time this even became an issue for Shilla, which was um, a century later, in fact. Uh, and that's historiographically why Kaya didn't make it as a, an independent part of peninsular history as it was traditionally written, historiography, in other words. Now, the other side of this is the political one, and this deals. Uh, you know, directly with 20th century history and politics. And that uh, has to do with the Japanese annexation of the Korean Peninsula in 1910. Um, and uh, efforts that had already been underway by this time uh, by Japanese scholars to portray Korean history in such a way uh, that it uh, made the Japanese occupation of Korea look uh, not only okay, but actually, you know, a good thing for Korea because uh, by the by the way, you know, by the uh, um, um, according to the way that uh, Japanese scholarship was portraying Korean history at this time, Korea had always been sort of an appendage of China. It had always been dependent on on some other polity, and also, by the way, Korean and Japanese people were seen to have had common origins. So uh, the Japanese uh, were doing the Koreans a favor by uh, freeing them from China and uh, helping out uh, their brothers by annexing them. Well, you know, this didn't go over very well in Korea then or now. Uh, but the, the politicization of history was very evident even at the time. And uh, Kaya was one of the uh, uh, central issues in this whole argument during the colonial period because um, Japanese histories dating to the early 8th century claimed that uh, ancient Japan, in fact, had conquered the Korean Peninsula and established an outpost, um, uh, an outpost of control called Mimana in the area that uh, Koreans knew as Kaya. And really until well into the 20th century, uh, most Japanese scholars took this very seriously. And because of this, uh, Western scholars took it very seriously because they assumed that, you know, the Japanese were being more or less uh, open and honest about uh, what they were seeing. I'm sure that many of them truly believed this. Um, the problem is that there is no uh, support for this on the Korean side of, of um, you know, the, the Korean historical records have no uh, historical memory of this. And archaeology uh, tends to uh, refute that possibility both in uh, Korea and Japan, but people didn't know that at the time because archaeology took some decades to, um, to uh, um, reveal these contradictions. Uh, and so Kaya really 
uh, became seen as almost an embarrassment. That, that's the thing that Japan says it controlled at the time, and we just don't want to deal with that if we're looking at that from post-1945 Korea. So really, there was almost no scholarship on, on Kaya at all. Uh, there, there was no separate history of Kaya because none had come down to the present time. And Kaya was sort of an appendage uh, to uh, the history of Shilla and slightly of Pekche. So um, it was there, but it was not a coherent anything at the time. Uh, and this was the case really until maybe the 1980s when you started to see a, a backlash within scholarship in Korea saying not only was Mimana not a Japanese outpost, but, uh, but Kaya uh, probably controlled a lot of Japan. And yeah, this, was re- this really was uh, a rebound from the colonial period. And it, uh, in my opinion, it, it, it's, uh, it probably falls into about the same category of politicization of, of history. It's really difficult to uh, take it seriously, especially today. Although at the time, archaeology was starting to show some very interesting signs of connections between the peninsula and the archipelago that might have fed into this uh, new Korean way of looking at things. Uh, a decade or two later, you have uh, archaeology booming, especially from the 1990s. Archaeology in the southern part of the Korean peninsula was booming because of development. And we began to know more and more about Kaya. And gradually, this this idea that Kaya was too politicized of an issue really to work on and that the connections with the Japanese colonial project were just too close uh, to uh, be able to discuss Kaya comfortably. Well, this began, began to recede into the distance and uh, scholars began to work. Uh, Korean scholars began to work with uh, Japanese scholars and without uh, emotions getting in the way uh, a lot of the time. Um, and so the conditions really improved. Uh, I, I'd say they're still not ideal, but they're far better than they have been. So really, beginning in the 2000s, this was a time where you really could start looking at Kaya because the political aspect of it, which was always there, and, and Western scholars, by the way, saw this very clearly and were fascinated by it, maybe more so than than the history of Kaya itself. Um, but that is is uh, how Kaya was really uh, thought of until really the 2000s was this, this politicized thing that we want to avoid or we want to study it as the politicization of ancient history and archaeology. Um, and, and that's what makes Kaya so interesting. It's also nice now that we can start looking at Kaya uh, and not only Kaya, but but early Korea Japanese relations in a, a much more dispassionate way. Um, archaeology is really the key to this. You can look at archaeological um, data. Uh, you can't really do this objectively, but you can strive for objectivity. And and uh, the same data can be interpreted in many different ways, certainly. But you have a very rich um, um, pool of data for discussion. And there's a lot of active scholarship on this topic at a time. So uh, that's one of the reasons that, that Kaya is a very timely topic for uh, reintroduction into the English language, English scholarship. Great, thank you. And one of the, um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to look at the volume, one of the articles called Research on Kaya History and Issues of Academic Debate by Moon Chang Ro actually gives a really nice um, tracking of developments in the historiography of Kaya history in Korea that takes us through the changing historiographical environments from which studies of Kaya emerged um, covering the uh, research by colonial historians during Japanese rule, reactions to that in Korea, and then more recent historiographical um, innovations. 
the other two articles speak more specifically to the one of the other things that you just mentioned, um, which is really at the heart, it seems, of study of Kaya history now, um, especially now. And that is the reconciling of different kinds of forms of evidence, and specifically archaeological evidence, with the written record. So you've already talked a little bit about, um, and I won't um, harp on this too much, but the fact that because Kaya basically disappears from um, a lot of the official historiography early on, it leaves no record of itself, no written record of itself at least. Historians have to piece together um, accounts of the region from historical chronicles in different languages and from different historical traditions. So you mentioned this early on also in our conversation. You have to know Chinese, Japanese, Korean in order to try to piece together and kind of rescue Kaya from this historiographical um, morass, really, from the absence that it had occupied for a long time. And uh, another issue here is that, as you mentioned um, early on in the volume, the importance of archaeological progress in the region um, of Kaya, in, in the Yongnam region, I think um, you call it, um, right. from uh, in Korea in particular, really is transforming and has transformed and is continuing to transform the study of Kaya. And you describe this as a sea change in the Korean study of the field. And, and I want to mention this and just maybe um, move in this last part of our interview to talk a little bit about this, because also two of the other articles in the thematic focus section speak directly to this. So there's an article called Sources for the Study of Kaya History by Kim Tae-sik that looks um, specifically at the importance of integrating archaeological data into um, textual analyses of Kaya history. There's also an article called Archaeological Research on Kaya, Past, Present, and Future by Park Hae-woon, which uh, looks at the history of the use of archaeological evidence by Korean um, historians and Korean archaeologists and does something, I think, really, really wonderful, which many of the articles in these volumes do, which is give some sense of what from the perspective of this particular expert on this history, the future might hold. And it's um, it, it's a really, uh, it seems to me, sophisticated look at archaeological evidence in the study of this field, in particular in this article, because he's, in the, this author is not just saying archaeological evidence is important full stop. He's also offering a critical perspective on different ways that arch- different kinds of archaeological evidence have both fostered new understandings of Kaya history and also uh, blinkered the study of Kaya history in certain ways and, and provide some ideas on where to move um, in the future. So um, I would love if you could maybe bring us to the home stretch here by talking a little bit about the importance of archaeological evidence to this field right now. What was the sea change and what do you see moving forward um, in, in terms of the importance of archaeological evidence for understanding early Korea? Right. Um, and this, a sea change, I think, is an apt description because uh, uh, if you look at early Korean history as done in Korea, South Korea, I'm talking about primarily, North Korea is another thing altogether, um, it, it, it had not really stagnated, I would say. I mean, there, but it, you started to see the same sorts of ideas played again and again and again because you had such a limited uh, pool of historical data to work with. Um, and, and and it turns out that a lot of that, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the Samguksagi, the history of the three kingdoms can be called into question. Um, uh, there are a lot of contradictions, and this uh, allows for uh, a lot of academic discussions. But over time, you start to, you sort of wind up falling into the, 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 the same 
uh, rut over and over again, repeating themselves. Archaeology uh, broke scholarship out of that because it presented a, uh, a brand new uh, pool of data to be worked with. And uh, even from the very beginning, it was quite obvious that what archaeological data were telling us uh, didn't quite match what the historical record was saying in many ways. As some Every now and then you find some coherence, but I think uh, that's the exception to the rule. You uh, do see a much richer uh, picture from archaeology. The question, of course, is how do you interpret that data? Um, uh, I think that one of the tendencies early on, simply especially by people who have been steeped in the study of early Korean history, is simply to start plugging in that data to the framework we have already built based on historical records. And uh, I understand that this, this is sort of a, uh, uh, a natural tendency, but it's, probably, it's not the best one. Uh, I've, I'm a big advocate for sort of starting over from the beginning, tear the edifice down and start over again, because uh, archaeology provides with, with, with such a broad range of, of new information that we do ourselves a disservice if we simply keep the framework that we put together based on written history and see how the archaeological data fit in with that. Uh, we're much better off if we try to forget what we thought we knew and see what the data are telling us. Um, now, there are, of course, uh, <laughs> practical things that, that prevent this. People want to get jobs in Korea. They, they, want, they don't want to irritate their professors. And uh, um, so th there's not a, a great deal of encouragement to, like I said, tear down the edifice and start anew because, you know, you've know, you got to worry about whose edifice you're tearing down. Um, they, they, they might keep you from getting a job. Um, but, uh, but the opportunity is nevertheless there, and I think it's broadly uh, very widely realized uh, among uh, scholars in Korea. It's definitely realized by those, uh, who, those of us active uh, in Western scholarship who see this as a boon um, to what we have been – uh, rather frustrated with. Kaya is a great um, uh, illustration of this again because we really had more or less spiraled down into the political aspect of studies of Kaya and we weren't getting anywhere. Archaeology saved us from that. Um, now, the level of archaeological work uh, in Korea is staggering. Uh, and I think in early Korea, number one, there are a couple of papers on on heritage management, but also on the, the way that the archaeology is conducted in Korea. And it turns out that uh, um, uh, development boomed uh, to the extent in the 1990s and into the 2000s that the uh, the uh, institutions that were licensed to do excavation simply couldn't keep up with the work. And so you had a lot of private institutions, that you know, professional institutions that specialize in excavations were cropping up. There's more than 70 now, I think. Uh, and it has grown steadily year by year. I think it may, may finally have tapered off. Um, and I think that we have a, a, um, in early Korea 3, there's also an article uh, that addresses that topic as well. That's yeah. And, and, and so keeping up with the work is, is a real challenge right now. And so you have so many archaeologists who are struggling just to get their reports done and to get their excavation work done. Uh, so few people have the time really to sit back and, and look at the data holistically and say, what can we do with this? What can we turn up? Uh, I think that day is coming. And maybe some of us who have the luxury to sit outside and don't have to spend our, our time digging uh, in Korea and writing reports uh, are the people who may uh, actually be able to get to that first. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. That, that remains to be seen. Um, I certainly would love to be one of them, but I'm a little busy with running early career project at the moment. 
but that's that's really the I think the just the beginning of what archaeology is going to um, uh, give us. It also gives us a different ways of asking questions of the past. Uh, you, you can look at written documents. You know, somebody wrote those documents. Probably a lot of people wrote those documents, and other people rewrote them. And you can guess at what their motivations might have been, what their biases were. But ultimately, you're going to be hard pressed to come up with something that you can feel very confident about, especially in the case of Korea. Uh, this is just the nature of the field. Um, and there's a tendency simply to take things at face value, which I think is a mistake. Um, archaeology, again, frees you up from that uh, to a degree. Uh, it doesn't solve all the problems, of course, because, you know, if you're interested in, you know, what year did, you know, this event happen? Well, unless you're very, very lucky, archaeology is not going to help a lot there. Uh, but it certainly can help you um, uh, look at uh, those parts of a society that simply are not represented in the historical record. It can uh, allow you to look at uh, uh Exchange networks that simply aren't talked about in the records. This, this is this is a very interesting uh, field of study because it uh, it uh, reveals networks that uh, we would not necessarily have predicted based on the written record. Um, some, I mean, it also and it confirms some that we did suspect, which is uh, also uh, nice when when history and archaeology do occasionally uh, uh, cohere with one another. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that really is just touching the beginning. I think that what, what's necessary in Korea is that um, you know people have time to look at the data and see what it's actually telling us. Uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in the, the you know the pits that they are digging at that moment. Uh, historians uh, need to be aware of the limitations of archaeology and vice versa. I think if you are simply trained in history, you can you, you might think archaeology can do all sorts of things that it actually can't do, and knowing those limitations is key way of doing uh, doing archaeology responsibly from a historian's perspective. And, and of course, the reverse is true. Um, this is why I always advocate studying uh, historical and uh, history and archaeology methodology and theory. Uh, I think that that, I mean, that really touches uh, on some of the key issues. And I think that we are going to see a lot of new ideas come up. I mean, there is still you know, conservatism in Korean academia. A lot of the old ideas are not going to die easily. Um, but then again, maybe that's a sign of a healthy field. You don't want it to die too easily. Um, but at the same time, I think that some of the academic, uh, uh, the rigid character of academia, the conservatism probably needs to loosen up a bit in Korea. Uh, Westerners don't seem to have much trouble in uh, kicking around some old ideas if they uh, if they're not their own and they and they're not their, their professors' ideas and they, they it seems to work. And that's one of the areas, if I can get back to Early Career Project again briefly, that's one of the areas I hope Early Career Project can make, make a difference. And that is getting uh, Korean scholars talking to Western scholars and, uh, uh, and listening to each other's ideas and sort of considering things they might not have considered on their own. And I think that there is great potential in this. And archaeology is, is probably the, the, the one field that most uh, uh, abundantly illustrates this potential. Well, Mark, thank you so much um, for the volume. It's a beautiful volume, and you're doing an incredibly important service to the field, and not just the field of early Korea studies, but really the field of East Asian studies as a whole. It was really a pleasure to read through all three of the volumes. I learned so much, um, and thank you for making the time to talk with me. 
Yes, thank you. So there's the volume is extraordinarily rich. We only barely scratched the surface of the kind of work that the volume or and, and of the specific work that the volume is doing and that the project as a whole is doing. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to see this third volume? Well, I, I uh, probably uh, neglected to mention this when we were talking about how the volume is put together. We do, as you mentioned, have uh, studies uh, by Korean scholars on the topic that is uh, central to the individual theme of early Korea. Uh, beyond this, we, as you mentioned, we do have these other sections, the uh, uh, studies from the field, which is uh, uh, really, these are papers about the field itself. Uh, the institutions, the individuals, the, the processes, the, the way the field actually operates in Korea. And I think that it, uh, if you really want to understand uh, studies on early Korean history, archaeology, art history, as they are uh, done in Korea, then it helps to understand the mechanisms and the institutions and the individuals who really uh, made the field what it is today. And so we have several articles on, uh, like I said, heritage management. Uh, uh, there's an, uh, an early Korea three. There is an article by uh, Shin Suk Chung about uh, one of those uh, uh, independent uh, uh, institutes that specialize in excavation and how it actually works. And, uh, and these are some interesting things that I think that uh, people don't necessarily come across when they're dealing only with uh, uh, papers, uh, articles written on, on early Korean history. And I think that it, it uh, uh, enriches the entire experience of, of dealing with early Korea as a, uh, as a field. Um, uh, that was one thing. I, I thought I'd mention uh, uh, a place that we're hoping to go with the Early Korea Project in the future. Uh, I mentioned the workshops that we we do and the long-term workshops that go from, uh, you know, throughout the course of a year in which you have a team of people meeting and re-meeting and basically talking about how to put a book together. Well, some of these have uh, uh, revealed that there is room for additional research beyond uh, what is being done in Korea currently. And this is the case because you have Western scholars who often have no real background in Korea attend these uh, events, often as discussants. Uh, they see the data, they see the problems, and they are often in a position to suggest things based on their own experience, uh, uh, ways of approaching problems that uh, were simply never thought of by uh, those scholars who came from Korea or those of us uh, here in North America who work on early Korea. It's been a, a, a real pleasure seeing this kind of thing uh, come about. And so one of the things that I hope to do in the future is a more extended workshop series that goes multi-year to where we do end up having workshops uh, that meet in the U.S. And we identify areas where uh, productive research can actually be accomplished with a fair expectation of getting useful results and sending our participants back to Korea or back to the field, wherever that may be. Uh, to follow up on this and to reconvene again in a later date and, and and actually engage in research that otherwise would probably not have been done. And this is one of the advantages of having scholars from Korea and scholars from the West and, and, and from other places as well get together and, and, and see what good things can come of, of that experience. That sounds great. Um, and so, Mark, now that this volume's out and you've mentioned that you're very busy working on other volumes for the project as well, what's next for Early Korea and what's next for you? You've already mentioned um, these multi, the, the, hopefully the plan of these multi-year workshops. Is, is there anything else coming in the future that you'd like to mention? 
Yes. Well, I um, I would eventually like to get back to my own research. I don't have much time to do that anymore. My my research tends to deal with uh, that portion of Korean history, uh, so-called, that uh, took place in what is now so-called China. And so there, there's a lot of politicization here. My my early interest was in the state of Kogryo, and this became a uh, a real hot point in the um, late 2003 and 2004, and uh, it became the center of a, a debate between uh, South Korea, mostly also North Korea, and China over who owns Kogoryeo. And, and remember I said that Kogoryeo was a, a state whose uh, territories straddled, you know, uh, that border between the current border between China and North Korea and it extended even into what is now South Korea. So there was bound to be some uh, controversy at some point, And it really exploded to the point where this this history dispute was being discussed at the same level as the North Korean nuclear issue, believe it or not. And wow. Uh, it, and so why do people in, in, in East Asia, especially in Korea, take this so seriously? Uh, there's a good reason for that. Um, and that's another topic. But uh, but this sort of got in the way. I was interested in, in doing research on Kogoryeo, but because of the politicization of it, getting access to Kogoryeo sites in China, which is where I, I did my field work in the late 90s, became increasingly difficult. So I shifted my my uh, focus slightly northward to the, the early polity of Fuyo, uh, which... Uh, is also seen by Koreans as an early Korean state, uh, but which very few people work on, and it's a, a rich, rich um, field for exploration. And I, I, this was a topic of my doctoral dissertation, and which has been extensively revised, and it should be published through the Harvard Asia Center, hopefully in the next year or so, if I can uh, finish up early Korea project uh, tasks and get around to finalizing some of my revisions. <laughs> um, but I, I hope to continue my research on Puyo and on uh, uh, Korean uh, archaeology. I find myself being pulled more towards uh, uh, the uh, late prehistoric um, um, archaeology of Korea, the uh, Iron Age, Iron Period, is something of interest to me. And I would like to uh, uh, continue working to uh, uh, gain access to North Korean data. This is something that is essentially a black hole in early Korean studies. North Korea uh, does not publish a lot, and what it does publish now is not always reliable. And getting access to unpublished data is practically impossible unless you're one of those people who has access to uh, North Korea, and there are not many of us. So there are a lot of different things that I would like to do, uh, and I'd like for some of these to coincide with programs that the Early Korea Project is pursuing at the time. Um, and and, and I, I do hope that we'll be looking at uh, iron and bronze metallurgy as one of our initial multi-year workshop programs because this is another area that has become uh, uh, viable uh, as, as a long-term uh, research project uh, due to archaeological progress in South Korea. Great. Well, best of luck with that work, Mark. And again, thank you so much for making time, and it really was a pleasure. Well, thank you, Carl. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.